Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Here's Johnny. Hey, motherfucker. You never go ask them out. Now what is so damn funny? And here we go. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. Force will be with you. Always. But the truth! You can't handle the truth! Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Hello and welcome to another edition of the For Real Movie Club. I am your host, Chris, the Dace Man Dace, and this month we will be talking about Kevin Smith's films. Joining me on the panel from Fanboys Anonymous and Smart Out Moment, Mr. Tony Mango. Hey, hey, everybody, what's up? What's going on? And joining us in a few minutes will be Eddie Secura to help join us and talk about Kevin Smith's films. But first, before we get started, let's take a look at the man himself, Kevin Smith, who was born... August 2nd, 1970, is an American screenwriter, actor, film producer, speaker, and, of course, director, as well as a popular comic book writer slash author, comedian, and podcaster. So the man is very, very, very busy. So as it comes to it, he came into prominence with the low-budget comedy clerks, which we will kick off this podcast with, which he wrote, directed, co-produced, and acted as the character Silent Bob. Smith's first several films were mostly set in his home state of New Jersey. That's where we are. Woo, woo, woo. And while not strictly sequential, the frequently featured crossover plot elements, character references, and a shared canon described by fans as the View as Universe. Say that ten times fast. Named after his production company, View Askew Productions, which he co-founded with Scott Mosier. Uh, Smith is also known for directing and producing films such as Buddy Cop Action Comedy, Cop Out, Ugh. as well as the horror film Red Stain. <laughs> uh, Smith is also the owner of J and Silent Bob's Secret Stash, a comic book store in Red Bank, New Jersey. He hosts several weekly podcasts, kind of like me and Tony do, that are released on Smodcast Internet Radio. Smith is well known for participating in long, humorous Q&A sessions that are often filmed for DVD release, beginning with An Evening with Kevin Smith. So, with that being said, should be time for us to get in and start talking about the first movie. And the first movie, of course, will be Clerks. So, I'm excited. Clerks is one of my favorite movies, and out of the four, was filmed a little bit differently. So, let's get Eddie on the line before we get started. And then, as soon as Eddie connects, we'll get rolling with Clerks. So, Eddie's here. Yes, he is. Sweet. So let's get rolling. The first movie we're going to visit tonight here on the Four Real Movie Club is Clerks, which is a 1994 American black and white comedy film written and directed by none other than Kevin Smith, who also appears in the film as Silent Bob, starring Brian O'Halloran as Dante Hicks and Jeff Anderson as Randall Graves. It presents a day in the life of two store clerks and their acquaintances. Shot entirely in black and white, Clerks is the first of Smith's view askew universe and introduces several reoccurring characters, notably Jay and Silent Bob. So let's go around the panel. We'll start with you, Tony. What are your initial thoughts on Clerks? Clerks is definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. It's something that I can pop in pretty much whenever, and I will still laugh my ass off. Um, I have about maybe like five movies that whenever somebody asks me, you know, what are some of your favorites? And Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is actually one that we did in the first episode of uh, Four Real Movie Club, is usually the first one that I say. 
And Naked Gun or Clerks is usually my number two. Clerks is fucking amazing. I love it. Eddie, what are your initial thoughts on the movie Clerks? Well, it's pretty much uh, the versatile go-to movie. Like, if you're feeling kind of bored, watch it. If you want to laugh, watch it. If you want to see great dialogue, watch it. You know, it's just, it's, uh, I think it's a complete movie as far as uh, uh, indie uh, movie making goes, you know, pretty much. So the first thing we want to talk about is probably the most obvious thing when it comes to this film, and it sets apart from all Kevin Smith's other films. And the reason it was probably done is because it was a very cheap medium to do, and it can give the illusion of light and day when it doesn't. But the film was shot entirely in black and white. Eddie, do you think that the black and white helped or took away from the movie, or just because Kevin Smith was trying to make a cheap production that it didn't really matter at all? Um, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it happened by accident, I'm sure. If they had a lot of money, um, they would probably have opted for colors. I mean, but then again, if you uh, look at movie making as a whole, the first thing that uh, directors learn how to do is work with the light. You know, they, uh, the lighting director and the director are best friends throughout the whole thing. Uh, it's, lighting is a very tricky thing to pull off in movies, and um, I think they got, you know, they, they hit it by accident. Uh, it totally works. Uh, the black and white things uh, gives it a timeless kind of feel, and, and you know, if you'll you'll never know. I mean, maybe Kevin Smith deliberately did it, or maybe he just figured, what the heck, let's just do it for for whatever reason. And uh, I think it comes off almost as a film noir kind of thing. But I I suppose he was uh, he was trying to he was trying to work that kind of like that comic book feel kind of it, like as if you're, you're reading a comic book and turning pages, which is something he did in a lot of movies. Uh, in Clerks, it's a very, it's, that comes off as very subtle because of the black and white. Mm-hmm. Tony, what were your thoughts on the uh, option to go black and white when it came to this film? I think aesthetically, it doesn't really help or hurt it. It's not like if Clerks had been colorized like they did with like Going with the Wind, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz and different stuff that it would hurt the movie and take away all that's panache or whatever, but I think it does help when it comes to how cheap he made it because there's got to be a lot of just pure grittiness and uh, some other different things that get washed away when you have it in black and white. And he got around that through the black and white medium. If he would have just filmed it all in color, it would have been very saturated still, and maybe it wouldn't have looked as good. Maybe people would have written it off immediately in the first 10 minutes when uh, Dante's in his room and the lighting is really poor or something like that. So I think it was definitely a smart choice. And from then on in at Mallrats going forward, I mean, he had the money where he didn't need to do that anymore. So he hasn't gone back to it except for, you know, for two seconds in Clerks 2. But obviously that's a different reason why it wasn't like that one scene was just like, I don't have enough money for this scene. You know? <laughs> Um, one thing that should be noted as, as a filmmaker and people who want to get into this type of uh, profession, it's really an amazing story when it comes to Kevin Smith because he shot this on a budget of $27,575. That's all he had. He maxed out credit cards. He tells a story. It, it's really an infamous story when it comes to it. And most, actually, all of the cast were just his friends, his buddies, and people he just gathered around. So it's a really good story for those of you that are hoping to progress to the next level. But the real takeaway of this, it, the box office grossed $3 million 
uh, about $3 million when it comes to what they raked in. And it became a cult classic after it got released to DVD. So on a budget of $27,000, Tony, do you think that he hit it out of the park? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's the reason why he's got a career now. If it wouldn't have done that, he would have just been your average dude, like, you know, me or something. (laughs) Um, If he wouldn't have hit that mark, or if he would have just kind of done okay or something like that, then nobody would have made a big enough deal for him to get Mallrats. And even though Mallrats didn't, um, it didn't uh, perform as well as they expected it to, it still did well enough that he was able to pack up his stuff and keep on going and whatever. So if Clerks hadn't have been such a big success, Kevin Smith wouldn't have been such a big success. Uh, Eddie, what are your thoughts on the budget? I am a huge fan of minimalism, and I think that really helps creativity. But I uh, I think in movies, as far as movies are concerned, that's a huge hurdle to get around. You have to pay a whole staff. You know, you got to pay your actors and and all that. And I, I watched, um, not only did I watch Clerks a few times in the past few weeks, but um, I saw this... Uh, 10th anniversary edition with the uh, with the commentaries, and they they're just discussing like oh yeah that's uh, that's actually a, like Kevin Smith's like mom's house and uh, yeah that's Kevin Smith's mom over there with the mil- the, the milkmaid yeah. and stuff so it, like it, you know like uh, all the guy that there's one guy who played like four roles in the movie like totally different people in the movie like um, so I mean uh, you know if he can pull that off with only like 27 grand it's like well, back then, it's like, I don't know, today would be like 45 grand or something. Uh, it, that's pretty much genius, I guess. And, um, and, you know, I think his best movies are, in fact, um, Clerks and Chasing Amy, and those you'll see are the lowest budget movies. Mm-hmm. For sure. One thing that we do always talk about when we talk about our movies here on Four Wheel Movie Club is the casting. Most notably for Clerks and a lot of his projects, there's a lot of his friends, family, anyone that was in the state of New Jersey or around the block at the time when he was shooting, he said, hey, come over here, we need you for a second. He put him in the film. So when it comes to Clerks, that definitely captures that, hey, I grabbed all my buddies and friends, and let's shove them in the movie. The two couple lead characters, Brian O'Halloran, Jeff Anderson, uh, they're good friends of his. The one that you referred to, Walt Flanagan, who can be seen now on Comic Book Men, who runs Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash, played four characters right. in this. Um, right. He was the woolen cap smoker, the egg man, the offended customer, and the cat admirer. So he, he definitely incorporates his friends. Do you feel that the casting, basically with all these guys being unknowns, was it hit or a miss? We'll start with you, Eddie. Oh, definitely hit, but then again, you can't control things like that. I mean, sometimes stars align, you know. Uh, you know, how come Metallica worked? I mean, there were just four kids who got together, you know. So if somebody else was different in the band, it wouldn't have worked. Same thing goes for Nirvana, and, uh, you know, same thing goes for whatever other movie. Star Wars. Star Wars, I mean, it totally worked. You take out one lead actor, you know, if if, if uh, Harrison Ford was never there to help out George Lucas in the during the casting, who knows who would have been Han Solo, who knows if it would have worked. You know, I think it's the, the concept of um, fate weighs heavily in this uh, Tony, what are your thoughts on the casting? It's amazing how much he lucked out on this because 
I've tried making stuff with different friends of mine and different acquaintances and stuff, and not everybody can pull it off. And man, even like the littlest people in this movie, they might not be, you know, Academy Award winning actors or anything like that, but um, I, I can't remember the, the guy's name. I, I had his name before in my memory, and it's just drawn a blank right now, but the one friend of his who is the hockey player in it, and he's got a pretty. Um, decent line that people could screw up where he says you're the one in denial and suppressing rage motherfucker or whatever and <laughs> that's such an obscure thing that nobody would really say and he's clearly not like this you know classically trained actor and he's pulling that off as a completely convincible person so i mean flanagan if you watch comic book man he's got no charisma at all i mean not to insult the guy but he's not you know this leading man kind of a person and he pulls off multiple roles in this and if you are not paying strict attention to who he is and really like try to pinpoint his face from a crowd you wouldn't even tell that it's the same person multiple times so i mean he really got lucky here because the two principal characters in here don't really act in many movies outside of these and they are so iconic in these roles that whenever you talk about clerks and jane silent bob and whatever like that um if it had no dante and randall specifically randall too as much as jeff anderson is not the biggest fan of being in these movies and working constantly and whatever without these people just working and all the stars aligning like Eddie was saying then this movie would have been garbage for sure and one thing that like you said to take away from this movie is obviously it's legacy Jay and Silent Bob who were just a side story standing out front of the shop have gone on to be in multiple movies and even got their own movie um, and Silent Bob and well actually Jay and Silent Bob will be a reoccurring thing throughout all four movies when it comes to what we're talking about tonight uh, but as you said, with Dante Hicks and Randall Graves, huge. Uh, just some of the arguments they would have, and that's one thing I want to talk about real quick, is that the way Kevin Smith writes his scripts, there are several debates within the movie itself, and a lot of them handled happen between Randall and Dante. Tony, we'll start with you. When the interaction between Dante and Randall, the, the debates they have, which you can be seen in Clerks and Clerks 2, do you think that adds to the movie, uh, takes away? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's one of my favorite parts about it. Um, the reason I actually got into Clerks originally was a friend of mine. Uh, he was on like a big movie kick. Um, he's a big movie guy. And he specifically said, you got to watch this movie, Clerks. The two main characters argue like we argue. And he played just the one scene of um, the Star Wars argument. And that was like holy crap, i got to watch this movie because this makes so much sense that they're arguing about independent contractors and stuff. And uh, from then on, I mean, I was hooked on that. I could watch um, a four-hour movie of just Dante and Randall arguing about absolutely nothing that matters. Eddie, what are your thoughts on the interactions between Dante and Randall? Well, I mean, it's trademark uh, Kevin Smith. His dialogue is pure... Um, it's like it's like a very pleasant, uh, dare I say, symphony. Uh, because honestly, it's like I you re you rarely watch a movie 
especially in Hollywood, uh, that hence Clark's being a, an indie movie and all, but uh, Kevin Smith usually maintained this uh, dynamic of dialogue, where it's just two people just shooting shit. And uh, it brings a realism to uh, uh, movies that are, that are sometimes uh, a little over the top. Um, I think, I, actually, I can't think of an example where... Uh, where I've seen a you know like a, a great blockbuster movie with amazing dialogue, so I think this is why Kevin Smith is such an appeal. I mean, uh, obviously he's a reader, and obviously people who date Kevin Smith are huge uh, well nerds or comic book fans, or they like to read uh, a little bit of both. So uh, the the interactions between Randall and uh, oh my god, brain fart, quick Randall and uh. Diamond okay. Halloran. What's his name? Dante. Dante. Oh my God. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I mean, they they set uh, they kind of kickstarted a whole. Um, they reawakened the, the a taste for dialogue that was kind of kind of getting lost. But also, not only uh, does it work because the dialogue is great, but there's also this fascination with dynamic duos, screwball duos, right? Uh, the early 90s, Quirks uh, is from 94, right? So you had Wayne and, Gar- um, Wayne and Garth, Beavis and Butthead, then uh, Lloyd and Harry from Dumb and Dumber came by in 96, uh, or 95. And uh, there, there was just a, it was just a time where everybody, like, the, you know, uh, the mass media was like, oh, you know, duels are funny, you know, uh, there's the guy who talks too much and there's the, uh, the shy guy and then, you know that was that was that was really working uh, a lot by then, and I think Kevin Smith just kind of that's where he really got lucky. I don't even think he got he got lucky with the casting. I think that kind of just happened, but he got really lucky that um, he made Clerks when he made it. Sweet. Uh, when it comes to this movie, obviously the legacy is just it's unbelievable. It, it's got its own. Uh, a it had a sequel, which is Clerks Two, and that was announced earlier this year. Uh, July 15th on an episode of App at Noon on IGN, that Clerks 3 was finished and packaged together and sent to the studios uh, with the hopes that he would start shooting soon. So obviously it, it's a trilogy that's coming out, and the legacy is great. It had its own cartoon animated series. Uh, it has a comic, and it's, it's referenced in TV shows. So therefore, Clerks really took off, and it, it built its own legacy that is just huge. When it comes to the legacy of uh, Clerks, how much of an impact, and uh, I'll shoot this question your way, Tony, do you think Clerks uh, on a whole has on filmmaking today? Clerks is, uh, this is something that's going to come off a little bit, I don't know if I would say conceited or arrogant or whatever, but um, I can't think of a better way to to word it where I don't sound like a douche. (laughs) I do not believe necessarily in the concept of heroes and inspiration, truly. I think that a lot of people, they put too much on other people, and you should go out and do things yourself. It shouldn't be, I watched somebody else do it, and that means that I can do it. But, that being said, if there's one person that I actually pay attention to and I actually use them as an example and reflect back on myself, it's Kevin Smith. And it's not just from him doing the podcast, it's not from him being a comic book person and getting into that medium and different things, but the fact that he was just a guy who did what he wanted to do, 
He didn't sacrifice what he was going for, and he ended up making it because he was just talented enough to pull it off. That's something that speaks volumes to anybody who is really, really in a bind and they're stuck and they want to be in the entertainment industry and whatever. I mean, Kevin Smith is a guy I could sit down and just shoot the shit with myself. Guaranteed. And most celebrities don't have that kind of an attitude. But I could also look at his career and I can draw parallels to my career. And, you know, if I'm having a down day or something like that I and I'm not as successful as I was kind of hoping that I would be and whatever, I can look to Kevin Smith and I can be like, you know what? He pulled off Clerks and Clerks, you know, it, it, he had some ups and downs in his career, of course, but he pulled off Clerks. And if I can do something like that, well, Kevin Smith did it, so why can't I? And I think that that's a huge source of inspiration for a lot of different people. He didn't have this rich friend that got him the connections. He didn't have all the money in the world from his parents that he could start up from. He didn't really come from anything. He was just a guy. And Clerks proves that you don't have to be more than a guy to be able to pull off being more than a guy. Eddie, what are your thoughts on the legacy of Clerks? You know, it's bizarre. Um, usually we, uh, when I think of legacy, I, th- I think of stuff like, you know, all oh, Star Wars, and, you know, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, you know, that kind of stuff. Or, you know, standalone movies like uh, Fight Club, you know, stuff like that. That, that to me, you know, it, it's a legacy and all. But Clerks is such a humble kind of project. You know, it's, um, I mean, it, it, by all means, it, any, um, any film critic will take it seriously, no matter from what angle they analyze it. But, it's it's always going to be this cozy little thing that you can go to and just kind of say ah this is nice you know like I, I it's hard to com- compare like because Kevin Smith you know it's funny Tony mentioned him as a celebrity I don't even see Kevin Smith as a celebrity he he's literally like just some guy you know like just some he's like the Dave Grohl of filmmaking so to speak he's just some guy who's awesomely talented and has made some great stuff. Um, I hope that analogy kind of makes sense. Uh, but otherwise, uh, man, I mean, it, the movie doesn't age. You know, other, I mean, the lack of cell phones and, um, and you know, uh, LOL jargon doesn't bother you, then, I mean, why, sh- why should it age? And that's legacy enough for me. I wonder how it's going to do with the later generations, though. That's just my only curiosity. But as far as I'm concerned, like, Clerks is kind of, eternal in a strange way cool uh what we'll do is we'll go i'll give you some quick facts here on the movie clerks that we had already talked about the budget and what it grossed um it was written by kevin smith produced by kevin smith and scott mosier uh the cinematography was done by david klein um edited by kevin smith and scott mosier as you can see it's a it's a running trend with it that kevin smith did most of the legwork in the background uh, it was release date was October 19, 1994, and the theatrical release saw 92 minutes, and the first cut saw 104. Um, before we move on to Kevin Smith's next movie here on the Four Wheel Movie Club, we'll go around, we'll talk to you guys one more time, just see what are your final thoughts, and what would you rate it on a 1 to 10 when it comes to Clerks. Tony, we'll start with you. Clerks definitely is one of my favorite movies. Um, I love it from top to bottom, except for one thing in it, the opening animation. I fucking hate that thing. I don't know why. That <laughs> yeah. stupid goddamn clown is the only thing I don't like about this movie. 
and that's you know of course like some actors could be a little bit better and uh you know little nitpicking kind of stuff aside the movie is just fantastic um there's just there's one line in the movie really that sells the whole movie to me and it's a an obscure one that people don't bring up or whatever but it just proves the the attitude of the movie and that's when um when Randall is not paying attention to the customer and she's trying to go back and forth about are these movies good and what about these oh those movies suck and <laughs> she gets all pissed <laughs> off and leaves and says I'm never going to come back here and then he's like yeah well you're not allowed to rent here anymore and the thing that makes it so fantastic on top of that the little cherry on top is the fact that Jay is just <laughs> yeah <laughs> It just proves that these people are such assholes, and it's such a normal thing that would happen. It's not movie dialogue where it's, you know, it's witty banner back and forth. Randall does not give a shit. Uh, the, the other side characters have no idea what the fuck's going on, but it's just like, yeah, fucking tell that bitch. <laughs> like, it's so fantastic. And if you love this kind of movie, you love Clerks. If it's not your thing, man, you fucking have to hate it. Because it's just, it's a love or hate kind of movie. And so far, I don't think I've met anybody who has disliked it. So that speaks volumes, too. Um, I, as far as a 10 goes, if I'm going to go with um, Academy Awards stuff, which I'm going to throw out the window for this, because none of these movies are ever going to win Academy Awards and stuff. Obviously, they, they didn't, and they, they don't do retroactive ones. But, um, you know, I'm not going to ra- rank these on a 10 scale of a 10 being a Shawshank Redemption. I'm going to rate them on how I like them. Clerks is definitely a 10. Awesome. Eddie, what are your final thoughts? And on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give Clerks? Uh, Clerks uh, brings a very good point to, to the forefront is that back then, probably still today, maybe even more so today with the, the economy and all that, but there was a big haze of, you know, what do we do next in terms of uh, aspirations in life? Um, you know, you see these two guys, and I don't know if they're mid-20s, I guess they're mid-20s, and, and they're just bored out of their minds working this lame job, you know, that uh, with, as Randall points out throughout the movie that Dante treats as, uh, you know, oh, man, if I if I don't do this job, who's going to do it and everything's going to fall apart? And Randall tells, tells him to get a grip constantly. And yet Randall's there working, you know. In, in the meantime, Dante's complaining that he's not supposed to be there today. And, um, and Randall just encourages him, like, quit, get out of here, get off your ass, you know, shit, up, get out, shit or get off the pot. And Dante's just like, it's not that easy, it's not, it's not that easy, you know, so it's, I think that's the main message in Clerks, like, what are you doing with your life, and are you truly satisfied with it? You know, what are you willing to let pass you by in life to, you know, to finally wake up and say, oh, man, I should do something about it. And I guess that's what Kevin Smith is probably going to as well. I, think, I mean, his, most of his movies, one way or another, are very biographical. And, uh, I mean, the store that they shot in, I mean, Kevin Smith worked there during the day. I mean, you know, he just shot the movie at night. So that's, that's, the, amount of, um, that's the amount of dedication he had uh, towards his vision. As far as the, as far as the rating, yeah, I'll give it a, I'll give it a, I'll, I'll give it a nine, but it's only because there were just a few things here and there that um, I think uh, in the, yeah, probably the acting aspect. I don't know how else to put it. Maybe it was a, 
bad editing. So not ba- I won't say bad editing, but just a, a lack of um, time and um, you know just resources that they had. I mean, those guys were like sleeping like two hours a day sometimes. Um, Kevin Smith and uh, the the editor, I forgot his name, Scott Moser. Yeah. Uh, however, the soundtrack is amazing. The, the well, every, every everything's awesome about the movie. But it just the make it tiny because of some some very slight uh, aspects of them. Probably, I think acting. Okay, cool. Thank you for those of us that are joining us. We're getting ready uh, to finish up Clerks. We've just finished that. We're going to be moving on to our next film here on Four Real Movie Club, which is Mallrats by Kevin Smith. So if you're listening live, hang tight. We're going to jump right into that with a little bit of a synopsis. If you're listening on YouTube on Fanboys Anonymous, you guys go ahead and click the link and go on to episode or part two of this month's For Real Movie Club. So, jumping into the next movie, aka which is Mallrats, uh, it's a 1995 American romantic comedy film written and directed by none other than Kevin Smith. It is his second film in the View Askew universe that we keep talking about, and a prequel to 1994's Clerks. Uh, as in the other View Askew films, the characters Jay and Silent Bob figure prominently, and characters and events from other films are discussed. Several cast members, including Jason Lee, Ben Affleck, and Joey Lauren Adams, have gone on to work on several other Smith films. Comic book icon Stan Lee also appeared, as did Brian O'Halloran, at the star of Smith's breakout feature, clerks so let's go around the uh real quick and we'll talk to eddie you first what are your initial thoughts on Mallrats? well i uh i was flipping through channels one day it was like a school night it was like somewhere 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 around 1 a.m 2 a.m and i was like ah i had a math test or something why i remember that i don't know but i do remember that at first um that i uh i accidentally flipped onto some channel and i and then I saw uh, I saw this very familiar thing. There's like there's like this dude, this chubby dude, upside down with a, a goatee and a beard or something. And then he's reaching for this tape. And then it just hits me. I'm like, oh my god, that's totally like the the uh, the Wampa layer with the the lightsaber and snow. And I'm like, it totally is. I'm like, that's the same thing. It's like, and then like you know like uh, and even subtly, what's his name? Um, in the movie, I forgot his character's name in the movie. He just he kicks the this rig, and then like the tape falls into his hand. I'm like, that's all. I just cracked up. And then for a uh, for a few months, I tried to figure out what movie that was. Um, no, I did not think of watching the credits. <laughs> but I, anyways, I described the scene to a friend of mine, and then he said, uh, you know what, you should totally ask. Um, there was a comic book store next to where I lived, so I went there and I told him uh, I, des- I described the the. The, the scene, the, the final scene and all. And then he said, oh, that's small rats. So I knew somebody who, hang on. Sorry about that. Uh, there was this, um, yeah, he, re- he let me borrow the movie, and I saw it like 20 times. And to me, it's the ultimate comic book movie. I mean, it, it begins awesome. You see all these comic book covers, and they're like Weapon X is Weapon Sex, and Fantastic Four is Fantastic Two, and you, you see all all this hilarious stuff going on with, uh, with the double meanings. And it it was funny. It was definitely hilarious, and it got my attention when I was eighteen. Uh, Tony, what were your initial thoughts on Mallrats? Mallrats is an entirely different animal from clerks in a lot of different ways and actually all of these are i mean he doesn't just make the same movie over and over again even though he's got a lot of the same 
threads woven throughout. I mean, obviously the continuity is the same and I mean, there's even a line in this that that bastard's faster than Walt Flanagan's dog. Like, you know, he does this kind of shit all the time, but the, the movies themselves are different styles. And I know a lot of people that really, really like clerks that hate mall rats. I am not one of those. I actually really, really like mall rats too. Not as much as clerks, if I have to be honest about it. Um, but there's lines in Mallrats that are funnier just in two seconds than an entire diatribe in Clerks could be sometimes. Um, Mallrats is a movie that I watched because I had loved Clerks so much, and I was just like, I gotta watch everything that this guy does now um, until he proves me to be like, oh, well, that he only did the one movie that was good and the rest suck. I'm looking at you, M. Night Shyamalan. Um, <laughs> but Mallrats is, uh, it's not a movie, this is going to sound like more of a complaint, but it, it necessarily isn't. Um, it's not a movie that I will pitch to people and say, you got to watch Mallrats, you're going to love it. Because as much as Clerks is a love it or hate it movie, Mallrats is very much more so on the most people don't like it movie scale. But I think it's got a lot of charm to it. I think it's got a lot of stuff that really separates it from being a normal teen rom-com from the 90s. And the bad parts about it are those parts that sacrifice themselves to be a little bit more mainstream. If it would have been that budget and Kevin Smith had full-blown range to do whatever he wanted, I think Mallrats would have possibly even surpassed Clerks. When it comes to, let's give you some little bit of facts when it comes to Mallrats. It was uh, written by Kevin Smith and directed by Kevin Smith. It was produced by Sean Daniel, James Jackson, Scott Mosier, and cinematography was done by David Klein and edited by Paul Dixon. Uh, the release date was October 20th, 1995, nearly a year after Clerks, and the budget was $6 million. Now, the box office domestically only did about $2 million and it almost did about 2.5 between the U.S. and Spain. So in situ- when it comes to this movie, it looks like a flop um, when it looks at the box office. The runtime was 94 minutes, and the extended cut was 123 minutes. Now, as always, when we talk about films here on the Four Wheel Movie Club, we take a look at the cast. And when it comes to Mallrats, we introduce a lot more names in this movie that are not, just, that are not friends with Kevin Smith from the neighborhood in Jersey that he's from. But we see the introduction of Jason Lee, um, Shannon Doherty, uh, Doherty, Doherty. It's Dorothy, I think. It's just Irish, I guess. We'll just call her Shannon. <laughs> Brenda, call her Brenda. Brenda, uh, and then we have Ben or Batfleck. Yeah, Batfleck's back. He's the bomb of um, Phantoms, yeah. <laughs> and Michael Rooker as the enemy, and Stanley, of course, for the cameo. So when it comes to casting, Tony, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, how do you feel that the casting was done when it comes to Mallrats? It's a weird situation where half of it is amazing. Half of it is kind of crap. Um, it's a, a step up to have Ethan Supley then Scott Mosier for the Willem character, even though I actually was kind of happy when Mosier was Willem in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back too. Um, and... The selling point of this whole movie is Jason Lee. He just knocks this out of the park. But a lot of the mainstream people, they just don't fit in. Um, was it Jeremy London or Jason London? 
Yeah, Jeremy. Jeremy. He is very clearly just the good-looking guy who they put in the role because he is the selling point for the women. Uh, Claire Forlani is completely replaceable. She's got nothing special going on for her. Michael Rooker is cool, and he plays the same character in almost every movie. I mean, he's he is uh, Mr. Svenning in Guardians of the Galaxy. It's ridiculous. The only thing that's different is that he's blue. But um, they really have lucked out in some ways, and in some ways it could have been a lot better if they would have just, again, gone full-on Kevin Smith. I don't know if he would have had any friends that could have played some of these roles, though, so that you know, there was kind of a double-edged sword here, but um, one of the things that's weird about this movie is that they wanted to recast Jay, and they wanted Seth Green to play the part. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I like Seth Green, but he would not have been Jay. I mean, Jay is Jason Muse. If they would have gone ahead and recast that role, I don't think Kevin Smith would have had much of a career afterward. I think that Jason Muse is one of his muses. I mean, that's kind of a pun, but it, it's <laughs> the truth. I mean, Muse is a, a constant, and having him in this movie is one of the best parts about it. If you take out Jason Muse and Jason Lee, then the movie crumbles. Eddie, what is your thoughts on the casting when it comes to Mallrats? You know, it's the, it's the kind of movie that I saw so many times that I don't even know anymore. Uh, yeah, Jason Lee is by far like the star champion of the world in this movie. Uh, he's hilarious. He's annoying. He's arrogant. He's a good guy. You know, he's he's everything. He's everything in one. Uh, Loudmouth. You know, uh, everything. He makes he makes stuff happen. You know, he makes stuff happen around him. That's that's the thing. It's like it's like the whole movie is his playground. Not just the mall, like the movie. You know, the flea market also. Um, everything works because of him. Um, I have no objections towards uh, Claire Forlani. I think she is fucking hot. Can we say F word? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, oh, yeah so we cool. can. She is, <laughs> she is fuck. I would so like like give one of my testicles away for her. I would totally would. <laughs> Uh, I, th- I thought she was fucking hot. Anyways, um, uh, in, in in a good way, not like a you know like a, I, I want to destroy her kind of way. You know what I mean? Anyways, uh, <laughs> I try thought, to save face I here. People, <laughs> I'll differ from Tony uh, when it comes to James and Bob. Let me tell you what what I think he did with the characters. Um, in fact, uh, Tony also brought up a good point that no Kevin Smith movie is the same. Yeah, I think that's really cool because you're never going to see the same people through the same through the same light. In Clerks, I love James Howard and Bob because they brought this kind of uh, street credibility to it. You know, in Mallrats, they're just kind of silly. I, I just got that impression that, you know, especially with the Wolverine thing. Like, you know, Gene never struck me as a, a comic, comic book guy. You know, he he seemed more like a I don't know, you know, likes his weed, likes his metal, and that kind of stuff. I mean, he's like, yeah, Wolverine, and then Silent Bob, like, yeah, you know, doing the Force kind of thing. But it, you know, Mallrats, it belongs in the Mallrats world. You know, it belongs in that kind of, in that kind of light. So, uh, I, guess, I guess this wasn't really a casting thing, but uh, I'm not sure I would have minded if Jay and Silent Bob had, had less of a role in the movie. Um, and uh, as far as the rest is, sometimes I don't know. Like some actors are a little bland, like Trish. Um, no, she's a dish. 
Yeah, I kind of use this LaForce. I, I didn't get the point of LaForce. Things are too slapsticky sometimes. I don't think LaForce did a bit it for me. Uh, even Simply is hilarious. Ben, ben Affleck is awesome. Uh, he in Kevin Smith movies, Ben Affleck is always awesome. Um, so I guess that's it for the casting. I, I pretty much I loved it, but. Uh. When it comes to the, like I said, the reception, Mallrats was the subject of much critical, critical like hate. When it comes to it, because they compared it to Clerks and what they were expecting from Kevin Smith, uh, Robert Ebert was even uh, quoted as saying that before Mallrats was released. I chaired a panel with, that Smith participated in, and Kevin Smith cheerfully said he'd be happy to do whatever the studios want, wanted if they paid for his films. At the time, I thought he was joking. Uh, Kevin Smith responded by apologizing for Mallrats at the 1996 Independent Spirit Awards, though he later stated that the apology was made in jest. Nevertheless, the film developed a strong cult following after it was released on video, and of course, Jason Lee was obviously uh, received a lot of praise for his character, and you would see he goes on to be in both Chasing Amy and Dogma later on in the Four Real Movie Club the movies that we'll be discussing. Discussing. Um, the question I have for you guys is, obviously it, it didn't do so well at the box office, only grossing two, uh, two million with an additional three hundred thirty thousand from Spain when the budget was six million. Why do you think uh, this movie became had such a strong cult following after it was released? to home movie and didn't do so well in the box office. Tony, we'll start with you. I think Kevin Smith is somebody who doesn't necessarily rub people the wrong way, but he's a tough sell for people that don't know what they're getting into. And when you take something like Clerks, it's got its audience and it's not really mainstream. And, you know, you luck out every once in a while when it comes to independent movies but if you try to market something as being smarter than the average moviegoer is, they get a little bit insulted. And if you dumb it down to the average moviegoer and it doesn't live up to being dumbed down, then they just get pissed. And Mallrats is a movie that it's too slapsticky in some ways to kind of appease them. And then it goes into these wild tangents that are the reason why it's got that cult following. I mean, I love Mallrats not for the jokes of, like, pretty much anything with um, Jeremy London's character and the Svennings and whatever. I mean, you can get rid of the majority of that stuff, and I will not really care all that much. I love it for stuff like Brody being pissed at the kids back on the fucking escalator again. That's the reason why I've passed this movie around to my friends and I've told them, you know, you got to watch Mallrats and you got to watch the rest of these movies too, not just Clerks, because Stink Palm is, uh, you know, going to make me laugh and LaFour's isn't. So I think that when you you put enough gems in a movie and you, you hide it a little bit to try to market it to a different audience, they're going to pay more attention to what you were broadcasting with a megaphone and that didn't hit it out of the park. Um, so it took for people to dig out the gems a, a little bit of time for it to be able to build up that kind of a, an audience. Eddie, what are your thoughts? Why do you think it, it, it got so much following after it was released to DVD rather than when it was first initially released? I'll never know, man. I'll never know. Something like, 
I, I'm one of those guys that usually I'll catch up to stuff eventually, but I don't really go with hype. So I I guess I understand. I suppose. Um, like it took me two years to, to watch The Matrix. You know, it took me uh, it took me a while to watch all three Indiana Jones movies. I was like 16 by the time I watched all three of them. Uh, but when I did, I loved it. So I don't really. I don't really know why particularly, you know, mall rats didn't do as well when it came out. Maybe, maybe it was just the wrong time. Maybe it was marketed in a, under a different light. You know, maybe it was marketed as, you know, I, I guess they were, they might have been unsure whether to say, hey, from the from the director of Clerks, maybe that wasn't the best way to go about it. You know, maybe they should have said, you know, oh, I mean, you know, like a, the tagline should have been like, I don't know, like a comic book fans like a wet dream of a movie, stuff like that. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Stan Lee's first cameo. Am I right? I think it might be. It's the first one that I can remember, like the oldest. Yeah, like I have never seen Stan Lee in any other movie earlier than that one. So I, I'll never understand marketing, and I'll never understand why some things work where they don't work. To me, it's just pure fate. I don't know. Destiny. It turns out that these are all connected to the Marvel movies, and Mallrats is actually just like a prequel to uh, Avengers 3 or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how yeah, Ultron was created. Yeah, the universe is actually in the Marvel universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to Mallrats, like you said, it wasn't a huge hit at the box office, so there's not too much to talk about for the movie itself. Um, the soundtrack, though, however, is one of the things that does get associated when it comes to Kevin Smith because of the type of music he uses for each of his movies. Um, so we'll just go real quick through the music, and we'll start with you, Eddie. What did you think about the soundtrack and the background music for Mallrats? Perfect from beginning to end. There's no other way to put it. I mean, it fits the movie so well. Like, Kevin Smith doesn't go after these big bands. In fact, I think the only major name uh, from... Uh, uh, from his uh, first first three movies, I think even Dogma uh, was Alice in Chains. There was there was Got Me Wrong uh, when Randall first makes an appearance. No, when he first goes to the when he's, he does that wrangle thing where he walks into the the, the, the quick stop mm-hmm. store, and uh, that's the only big band. Everything else is kind of small. Soul Asylum had a couple of songs that, uh, in Clerks, and that's it. But Mallrats, I mean, it's all these. I think they're all obscure bands. I can't. Um, uh, there was Squirt Gun, uh, uh, Squirt Gun, Girls Against Boys. Oh, Silverchair, I think. Yeah, Silverchair was like another. I, I don't consider them like really big, but it's just every every moment and like you know this. It, it's 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 punk rock. Sometimes it's subtle kind of stoner grunge. Sometimes it's you know it's it's perfect. I mean, it's 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 great. And uh, if you it makes you um, kind of it invites you into the movie further. It captivates captivates you in a way. I don't know how I don't know what the criteria was. Again, sometimes I think stars just align, but this is by far one of the best um, soundtracks ever. Just kind of thrown together because I'm, I'm not sure a lot of thought was put into it. Uh, Tony, what were your thoughts on the soundtrack for Mallrats? Soundtrack itself. I mean, he throws the the right songs in the right spots but the score i'm not a fan of i think that it's too hokey 
especially the one scene at the very beginning where the um, TS and uh, Brandy characters are breaking up. It's so over the top. And it really, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it really beats you over the head with the idea that it's trying to be a mainstream romantic comedy. And I don't like that at all. Um, I would much rather would have been happy with uh, a, a serenade from Berserker or something in that scene. <laughs> I want to make fuck to you, Berserker. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we roll on here through the Four Real Movie Club, we come to the end of Mallrats. So as usual, we're going to ask you what your high point, low point is when it comes to the movie and what you would rate it on a scale to 1 to 10. So Tony, we'll start with you. High point, low point, 1 to 10. Low point, I was going to say Shannon Doherty, but I shouldn't say that. Uh, the slapsticky nature is definitely the low point of it, and the, the mainstream appeal that doesn't cross over 100% with myself. Favorite scene, high point kind of stuff, um, I do love that escalator stuff. I, I even love simple things like, holy shit, if it isn't Mon Frere. Um, but there's two little things that I, I really love about this movie. One is very, very, uh, obscure in the background kind of, and it's when they're going through the, the schematics of their, their blueprint, um, plot to get, take down the fours and the little things that are written on there, like Jay's written, uh, he's drawn arrows to the fours and it says the fours all dumb and shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's something that I fucking love. And they actually sell a poster of that. I, I want to get that at some point. Um, but if I'm going specifically a scene, it's got to be Schooner. Eddie, what were you... Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, Tony, what would you get? Oh, that's right. Um, an 8. Uh, there's there's flaws to it, of course, but I still love Mall Rides. I can still pop that in and watch it whenever. Eddie, what were your high point, low point, and a scale of one to ten? What would you give Mallrats? Yeah, low point, uh, the 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 score of the movie sometimes is just kind of cheesy, uh, especially in that whole uh, when Brody asked Jay, so how do you plan on uh, pulling this off? And then he's like, oh, I was gonna, I'm gonna do this. Uh, 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 how do you, how does put it? Like a uh, Wolverine or whatever. He's like, yeah, I wish I call you Logan. He's like, no, Wolverine. And then he this cheesy like kind of swiping and slashing and I'm like man don't do that uh, yeah just the occasional slapsticky kind of thing doesn't work the only one that really kicks ass is when uh, Silent Bob realizes he, I think he's, he's going to fall or something and then he looks at the camera and he raises his eyebrows like here I go <laughs> and then he falls or something like that remember he was upside down is that what happens when he falls he looks at the camera. And he gives this hilarious, like, eyebrow raising, and it's and he falls. It's very cartoony, and it works. I think Kevin Smith's uh, he, he's a better comedian than, than he seems. Um, high points: uh, Joey Lauren Adams' uh, tits, pretty cool. <laughs> In fact, I think that was a movie where Kevin Smith uh, and her actually ended up uh, hooking up and dating for a while. Um. What else? Uh, there were several high points. I like, I like, I love the comic book covers. They're awesome. I, in fact, I downloaded a lot of images from, uh, from online. There, there are some fairly good scans of them, and and I had them as a wallpaper for a while. I, every day I switched to another one. Uh, soundtrack kicks ass. Um, Brody is awesome. I think it's 
one of Jason Lee's best roles ever. Uh, second to Banky from the next movie we're going to talk about. Uh, I'd give this movie, like 10 years ago, I would have, I would have given it like a 9 or a 10. I'll, I'll give it a 7 because sometimes I just I didn't dig the... the no, I'll give it an 8 because uh, there was that tit, uh, the pair of tits with the three nipples. <laughs> there you go. Sorry. My, my bad. Almost... <laughs> Holy shit! What the fuck? I almost missed out on that one. I'm sorry. I'll give it an eight. Yeah, you saw you saw you saw two pairs of tits. That's pretty cool. And it, it, I forgot that actress's name, but it, she, I mean, she was she was she was kind of a milf, but nice tits. Really nice. Doesn't that classify as two and a half pairs? What what? <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank everybody who's been hanging in with us. Uh, we're finishing up Mallrats now, so if you're listening live, we'll be moving on to our next movie here on the Four Real Movie Club, which is Chasing Amy. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure you click the link and head over to the next video, part three, where we will be talking about Chasing Amy. And here we go, rolling into the next one. So Chasing Amy is a 1997 American romantic comedy film written and directed by, guess who, Kevin Smith. The central tension revolves around sexuality, sexual history, and evolving friendships. In the third film in Smith's View Us Universe uh, series, the film was originally uh, uh, inspired by a brief scene from an early movie by a friend of Kevin Smith's in the Genevieve Turner's Go Fish. Uh, One of the lesbian characters imagines her friends passing judgment on her for quote-unquote selling out by sleeping with a man. Kevin Smith was dating star Joey Lauren Adams, you should only have one name. Uh, at the time, he was writing this script, which was also partially inspired by her. The film won two awards in 1998, Independent Spirit Awards, Best Screenplay for Smith, and Best Supporting Actor for, of course, Jason Lee. We're going to get our initial thoughts on Chasing Amy, and we're going to start with you, Mr. Mango. I hate Chasing Amy. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hate it, but I watched it three times now um over the course of how i forget the when i originally had first seen it i think i first seen it in high school so that would be like around 2002 or so um so over the course of about 10 years i've seen it three times all three times i struggled to get through with it i don't like this movie top to bottom the total opposite of clerks there's almost nothing about this movie that i like it's a shame i really really want to like it Fuck, I hate it. <laughs> Eddie, what were your initial thoughts on Chasing Amy? Well, I saw this movie like about 20 times. And uh, I first saw it um, back, like uh, on HBO, it was 1998 or something when the movie was still kind of new. And I thought, oh, pretty cool. I caught it uh, just as the Hooper X scene was going on. And I thought, oh, funny. And then I kept watching it and I was like, oh. Nice. I didn't really know what to think. You know, it was, it was an afternoon. I didn't have anything to do, so I didn't have the the attention problem that Tony faced. Uh, even though I didn't really relate to the movie. Uh, but as uh, you know, a few years later, I just I, know, I got bored one day, and I, was, I just decided to. I remember that movie off the top of my head, and I managed to find it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Let's watch it. And it, I don't know. I guess it's because I was. Uh, I had had a few experiences with uh, no, not gay, uh, with a girl, with uh, a few girls actually, 
And by then, it was a little more seasoned in the whole relationship kind of thing. So it really struck a chord with me. But the literature on top, I'll tell you later. So uh, initial reaction, really good. Cool. Uh, let's give you some facts about the movie Chase and Amy. Obviously, it was directed and written by Kevin Smith, produced by Scott Mosier, and it stars uh, Ben Affleck, Joey Lauren Adams, Jason Lee, and, of course, Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith make their Jay and Silent Bob appearance in Kevin Smith's movie. The music was by David Perner. Cinematography was by David Klein, and it was edited by both Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier. Um, production company was View Askew Productions in partner with Miramax Films, distributed by Buena Vista Pictures, and the release date was April 4th, 1997. The runtime is 113 minutes, and the budget, much like Clerks, was very low. Uh, not as low as Clerks, but the budget was a quarter of a million dollars, and the box office grossed $12 million. So, like Eddie had said earlier in our previous videos, the lower the budget, the better Kevin Smith seems to do. Um, as always, we're going to talk about the cast. So, obviously, Ben Affleck, Joey Lauren Adams, and Jason Lee are the main three characters in this film. There are certain, of course, the Jay and Silent Bob uh, scene with them. There's an appearance by Matt Damon, Casey Affleck, Brian O'Halloran, and even uncredited, uh, Joe Quesada is in this movie. So when it comes to casting, we'll start with you, Tony. What were your thoughts on Chasing Amy's casting? This is, uh, unfortunately, a movie where anybody who could have really made this movie stand out didn't get a chance to. Jason Lee would have been fantastic, but this is... Uh, the Banky's character is Brody Light, and he doesn't really have that much room to to do his thing. Um, I actually like Ben Affleck, but I don't like him in his, in this movie because his character is so wooden. Ke um, Joey Laurie Adams, she does the best part out of everybody here. Um, except for maybe, um, what's his name? Who plays Hooper X? The two of them are the highlights, but they're not good enough to save the movie. Um, it's more so characterization than the, the actual actors themselves, because I think that all the actors could have been able to pull off something better if they would have had the script better, but the movie is, in my mind, it's 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 doing them an injustice. Eddie, what were your thoughts on the casting? Uh, it works really well. I think uh, the dynamic was really good, but it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of movie where you'd have opposites. You know, you'd have... Uh, uh, you know, you have a character that's uh, all loudmouth, and then you have another one that's totally quiet. You know, uh, I, I, I thought that Banky and Holden, you know, Ben Affleck, um, Jason Lee and Ben Affleck, respectively, were uh, they, they had a pretty good, uh, uh, realistic uh, friendship going on. You know, even though Banky was still, you know, the kind of the Jason Lee Brody kind of thing going on, where he he'd sooner just talk shit and spit hate into, uh, towards other people rather than sit and assess the situation and be constructive about it. Um, I think it was a very, very adult movie in the sense that it's, there's no, there's no room for, for, for any shenanigans. You know, everything is very straightforward and, uh, very, it's, uh, it's almost, a. It's hard to imagine. It is a romantic comedy, but it's it's hard to imagine it uh, as something else other than a, a psychological study of the of of the average uh, young adult's uh, sexuality. 
I mean, uh, you have a you have a black gay guy, you have a lesbian. Who who tells uh, Holden it's not that easy to, to go back being straight because there's a whole lifestyle involved. You know, it's all the what she knows are inevitably shown her. So it's a very uh, uh, it's a movie that really drew me in. It really uh, kind of. What was the question again? So I can finish this off properly. Uh, what, what was your thoughts on the casting? Yeah, there you go. That's the the casting was uh, was so great to the point where I, it doesn't it doesn't stand out. But it, you'll never ever be able to criticize anyone for any acting in that movie. I think Ben it's Ben Affleck's best role. I think it's uh, I think it's Jason Lee's best role. You know, I haven't seen too many movies with him, but and it's definitely Julie Lauren Adams' best role. In fact, I don't know why she didn't go on to major major Hollywood movies since then. Uh, personal choice me, but amazing casting for sure. Uh, one thing that I, I think is we need to hit on as we talk about the Four Wheel Movie Club and this movie specifically is obviously that it's very hard to have a gray area in this. When it comes to the movie, to me, I personally didn't like it. Um, but as you can tell here on the panel, one likes the movie and one doesn't. Why do you think? And I'm going to ask you this first, Tony. That it's just so clear cut when it comes to chasing Amy. Either you like it or you hate it. I think it depends on what you expect out of it. Um, I watch Kevin Smith's movies because I like Kevin Smith's material from Clerics and Mallrats and stuff. And that's why I don't like Cop Out and why I have no interest in some different projects that he's been involved in. And Chasing Amy doesn't feel like a Kevin Smith movie to me. It feels like somebody trying to make a Kevin Smith movie. Um... We were saying before with uh, the idea that if Clerks wouldn't have been as successful, what would have happened? This movie comes out to me as like the indie wrong way to do Clerks. Uh, The grainy quality of it is probably what would have happened if Clerks would have been in color. And the cheap sets and the... Like a lot of different parts about this movie, just they feel like they're the the bad parts of Clerks when it comes to the budget and everything, and maybe not necessarily knowing all the skills, and the bad parts of Mallrats where it's trying to appeal to a different audience and not being just what it wants to be. So it's it's not what I'm going for when I'm going for Clerks and Mallrats and stuff. It's more so if I would have been going out on a date with somebody and she drugged me to a romantic comedy, I probably would have wanted to see this movie because it would have been like, well, that, that might be kind of funny because they're talking about shit that seems kind of funny in the trailer. But then it would have been like, eh, that was kind of a waste. If this would have been the first movie I would have seen of Kevin Smith, I wouldn't have watched anything else he would have done. Uh, Eddie, why do you think it's so clear cut? Either you hate this movie or you like this movie. You know, I think it really depends on uh, what people have experienced in their own lives as far as uh, relationships go. Uh, like I have seen, like I have had good friends uh, in uh, get mixed up in a love triangle, and uh, I've been in love triangles. So it's it 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 really talks to me on a personal level. So in that aspect, I'm really biased. If I you know if I remember when I watched it back in 98 or 99 um i don't know i i didn't fall in love with the movie but 
I liked it. And I guess because there was a, there was a little bit of uh, this and that, and a little games in there. Like I love the dialogue between um, uh, Banky and Hoops Rex, where he's like, "Ah, oh, no, like you're like you, you're kidding me. Like it, Archie is not fucking Mr. Weatherby." <laughs> Uh, you know, that kind of stuff is the Kevin Smith uh, watermark is definitely on there. Um, but I, I I don't know. I guess you just, sometimes you, you dig something, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it, it means something to someone, sometimes it doesn't. It's uh, Chasing Amy, I didn't really, I, honestly, I didn't even know Chasing Amy was that um, um, black and white because... I don't know too many people who have watched Chasing Amy, and the few people who have watched Chasing Amy love it that I know of. So it'll be a mystery. It's like that Mallrats thing. Why did it do so well uh, with the cult following after much much after its release? I'm not. I can't answer that for sure. Uh, one of the big themes when it comes to Chasing Chasing Amy is, of course, the sexuality with the uh, the lead lady. <laughs> would be a lesbian when he first meets her. And then, of course, we get into questioning Banky's uh, sexuality, and it just completely explodes in their face. Um, when it comes to confronting this head-on, do you think Kevin Smith was the right guy to write for this? Do you think that the sexuality was just, a, it made it a little awkward to watch? And we'll start with you, Tony. How do you feel about that being the overall theme of this movie? That doesn't hurt the movie. Um the polarizing thing about this, I think, is the fact that the two main things going on in the movie are polarizing. There's no cohesion between the discussion of whether or not um, the relationship stuff is the right way to go about stuff or whatever, and then this like wacky comic book stuff. Like The worlds don't mesh together in my mind. And Smith has proven himself multiple times that he knows the comic book stuff. I mean, he's gotten... Ethan Suppley's character in the the convention stuff is exactly what you will see a guy be like at a convention. Um, and he also really knows this stuff when it comes to the relationship um, aspects of things. There's discussions in every one of his movies where they are incredibly realistic and they don't bullshit around some different topics. This movie does a really good job of showing that it's not as simple as she's a lesbian, she finds this guy, they meet, they fall in love, the end, and she's not a lesbian anymore, like if it's like some kind of a sin or something. But it's also not straight cut as, well, she's a lesbian, so that's why they never get together. Um, he knows what he's talking about, and he does a good job at that. It's just the movie falls apart when they try to merge them together. So that one scene at the end where uh, Holden gives that whole proposition of how to fix things is amazing for what it's trying to accomplish. And he does exactly what you would expect anybody to do realistically, what you expect anybody to do with the reactions between the characters. I mean, why, why wouldn't Banky have just been like, okay. And then, Oh fuck, thank God. And why wouldn't, um, go into the movie just, no, no, this is not a good idea, and whatever. Smith is able to stay true to what the situation would be in real life. Yeah, odd things out. I mean, people are going to do whatever, but uh, he knows what he's doing in both worlds. It's just combining the worlds together that is where everything gets mixed up. Eddie, what are your thoughts on the overtone of the sexuality as the main theme for this film? 
I don't see so much of a sexual uh, overtone from the movie as much as uh, just relationship frustration. Just trying to make things work with uh, someone that's amazing, and then no matter, and then you think everything's going to work out because you know uh, when a couple starts out, oh, they're in love and everything is great and it's going to be easy. For Holden, it seems that way, but for uh, for uh, oh dear God, what is her name in the movie? Alyssa. For Alyssa, it's I mean she's she had seen some stuff and she had done some stuff and she knew it wasn't it wasn't going to be that simple. That's why she's so resistant to it in the first place. But when they are together, it's it's really about trying to make it work. Um, I I think the only uh, 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 sexual um, situation of note is that you have a, a gay black man in the movie who has to act like he's a, you know he's all like angry at at the white man for keeping the brother down and you know, like, oh they're trying to make everybody white in Star Wars and stuff like that and uh, it's I, that, that, I think that was the that was a that was a very uh, interesting uh, portrayal. I think of a character where he 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 acts as a tough guy, and then he's actually this this big gay black guy who's just merry and jolly. He you know, he means none of that stuff. Uh, and then I don't I don't know if it comes off as really uh, as a stronger overtone than a rom- just being a, a romantic comedy that actually that actually works and is actually s- serious and it's and it's, uh, it's it can be called a comedy because it's it actually makes you laugh. It's not like it's not a chip like romantic comedy. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm then again. I, I don't know. I I, I, don't, I see a lot of um, movies trying to uh, carry sex with um, as as a main theme, and it just doesn't really seem like it to me. Um, I don't think there's a, too much, if uh, any, significant sexuality in Chasing Amy, other than gay or straight. One other thing I'd like to talk about when it comes to this movie is the Jay and Silent Bob uh, scene. Obviously, the, the running theme is that uh, Ben Affleck's character and Jason Lee's character have developed a comic based off of uh, Jay and Silent Bob, which is Blunt Man and Chronic, um, and they come to collect their royalties. The one thing that I noticed about this film and in watching all four of these, this is the most that Silent Bob speaks. When it comes to the Silent Bob character, and I'll start with you on this one, Eddie, do you feel that he overtalked, or was it just enough be- because of the type of movie he was in? No, dude, his advice was gold. That is the best monologue uh, Silent Bob has ever done. Um, well, I think it's the only monologue because everything else is always like just one sentence or something. Uh, but honestly, uh, that particular part of the film, first of all, you see Jay and Silent Bob. Again, not as a um, slapstick, uh, goof, uh, kind of comic relief goofballs from all rats. But you see these two guys who are just—they're just there, and they're—and uh, they're just hanging out and being all vulgar because that's what they know. Uh, so it's—it's uh, it's kind of a relief to see Jason and Bob like that, being real. And actually, what Silent Bob says is really, really. Uh, I think any, anyone who's been in a relationship where uh, the girl had a lot more experience 
um, you know, be it sexual or just have sell more boyfriends. Um, they can, I think people can really relate to it. It's like you will be scared. You will not know what to do if um, if you're not secure. You know, if you're not really sure of yourself, if you're not really secure of yourself, you're gonna end up doing what he did. You know, just um, you'll you you'll, you'll either do what Holden tried to do with Alyssa and Banky, or you'll end up doing what Silent Bob did, just just push her away. Uh, so uh, it's it's kind of uh, I don't know if you if for some reason you know you can't get you can't get the kind of advice from your dad or an older brother or a friend who's a little wiser than yourself, and I think that's uh, that that monologue is absolutely gold. Uh, Tony, what were your feelings on Jay and Silent Bob's uh, inclusion into the movie, and more specifically, Bob's longer lines compared to most other films? I think that that scene kind of sums up what I don't like about the movie. Um, I wanted to see more Silent Bob and more Jay being Jay and Silent Bob. And in this movie, everything is turned around. It's... uh, Jay has some funny lines in it, and the advice is solid. I mean, I I don't think that you can argue against that, but it's instead of Jay being really funny and Bob having one insightful, funny line, it's Bob waxing poetic about things that aren't funny and Jay just kind of being there. It's it's sort of like saps the humor out of everything. It's like even Jay and Silent Bob can't joke around in this movie. They got to just talk about love. They got to talk. And I love, I mean, you know, romantic movies and stuff too. Time Traveler's Wife almost made me cry, and it's something that a lot of chicks would love, and a lot of dudes would be like, "That's a chick flick" or whatever. So it's not that it's like just the theme that I don't like about this movie. It's that there's no humor to it in a lot of different scenes. Like this could be a movie where. The, the basic idea is like a half an hour great discussion with a lot of different jokes and Dante and Randall are talking about it or uh, Brody and T.S. are talking about it or whatever the case may be. But in this movie, for some reason, everything was taken so seriously and the jokes that do come out of it are sort of like half-assed and put off the side it's like well we can joke about that to make this a little bit lighter of a scene but we got to hammer down that point so the silent bob doesn't get that one line of making sure that everything has been clarified like he does in clerks he just beats you over the head with the message of the movie so that's that's actually a, a great indicator of what i don't like about it it's you take a good idea and the execution is what is a shame. Lastly, we've gone through the movie. We've run down the uh, the tones, the suggested features, the cast, and all that. Um, now it's time to get our final thoughts, the high points, the low points, and what we would rate it on a 1 to 10. Eddie, we'll start with you. What is your high point, low point, and on a scale of 1 to 10 for Chasing Amy? Uh, there are a lot of high points, uh, but I think the, the dramatic performance of each uh, actor is by far my favorite uh like the argument after uh, during the during the hockey game where uh holden and Melissa start uh, yelling at each other and when, well it's, it's mostly Alyssa putting up uh because her defenses are down holden found out, found out about everything and joey lauren adams performance is phenomenal she's just in tears and uh, hysterical 
and first she's angry at him for accusing her of whatever he's accusing her of, and then she's pleading for his forgiveness for him to go on. And what's funny is that I've, I've seen this happen so many times uh, in real life, that, but I never noticed it until then. Like, uh, Holden was after her, going, oh, I, like, you know, I love you, I want to be with you and all that. And then in the end, he's the one that dumps her. It's like, I'm like, dude, you wanted her so bad, like, you're, you're just letting her go. You know, of course, you know, like 10 years ago, that didn't make any sense to me. Now I, like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I get it. Now, now I get it. Things are a lot more complicated than that. Otherwise, I like the fact that um, you're dealing with um, you're dealing with a romantic comedy that's not really a comedy per se. It's not a. It doesn't have those ha ha ha. She, you know, he's slipping a banana peel or whatever. Oh, how embarrassing! That kind of stuff. It's more like you know there are funny uh, dick and fart jokes, as are uh, Kevin Smith. Um, uh, and it's a dish that Kevin Smith will always serve in his movies, in, in his universe at least. Um, but it's it's a movie that really it, it plays on the dramatic. Uh, I think uh, I think like Tony was because it's Kevin Smith really expecting something to be uh, expecting this to be really funny and just uh, a lot more comical. But I see this as a true dramatical movie, uh, dramatic movie, and I don't. And that's definitely the high point. The fact that it it, it, it took me off guard with the with the performances, and the fact that it was so low budget for what it is, um, just makes it more spectacular. Low point. Uh, the soundtrack was never released. Uh, in fact, the best song in this movie is uh, one of my favorite montages ever. Because I I really like montages, especially not in romantic movies. But this one really works. Where you see Holden and Alyssa, you know, in New York, hanging around, having fun. And then there's a song by uh, the Hangups called um, Damn, I forgot what it's called. Uh, never, never will regret this. That's all the lyrics. So, and it was never released on soundtrack. Some uh, last-minute thing that happened, and they couldn't release it. That's a shame. Uh, I'll give this. Uh, I'll give this movie a ten, but it's really because I can relate to it personally. Um, I had a band that kind of broke up or almost broke up, and. Uh, back then, uh, back in the day, because, well, the drummer, the guitar player, fell in love with the same girl, and I kept advising one of them to dump her, and, well, anyways, I was right, they were wrong, <laughs> they learned, they learned, so, yeah, there we go. Uh, Tony, same question, high points, low points, and a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give Chasing Amy? Uh, let's see. Low point to me, the emotional scene in the bed when she's explaining her intentions and whatever, and that's because even though it does have a lot of good points that could be established and everything, it's just a downer to me. Um, like I said before, I think this is a movie where there's a lot of great ideas and a lot of great potential, but it's the wrong execution. It's kind of like Man of Steel or Fantastic Four, or like these comic book movies where they've got the the right idea, it's just something goes wrong along the way. And instead of being marketed as uh, something that's connected in with the, the rest of this universe, I think that I would have liked this movie better if it would have been marketed as something opposite, kind of like Red State or Cop Out or the Tusk movie that he's working on now. These aren't connected, so if I watch... I mean, I, I did watch Cop Out and I didn't like it. Um, and I didn't watch Red State, but... If I were going to go watch Tusk, 
I wouldn't expect it to be Clerks. But watching Chasing Amy, I expected it to be Clerks. And that's what was a huge letdown for me. If this would have just been Chasing Amy is something completely different, it's a, a serious attempt at whatever, I, I might not have as much of a prejudice against it. Um, but the I actually think that the music's one of the down points of the movie, too. Uh, it's very off-putting at the very beginning, that weird... It's kind of catchy, but the first thing in the movie is like this ear-grating kind of sound. Um, the high point, Hooper X. That scene is uh, great at the beginning of it, and that's because it reminds me of something that you would see in like a Clerks or something like that. Um, 1 to 10... I hate to be this rough on it, but a three, maybe. Ooh. Yeah, I'm not a fan <laughs> of Chasing Amy. And uh, when I was talking to a friend of mine about getting ready to do this show and you know rewatching these movies, and they were saying like, "Well, you've seen Clerks before, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, but we we usually watch them to get like fresher uh, minds. I haven't seen Clerks in maybe two years or so, so you know." And we were talking about Chasing Amy, and she was like, well, when's the last time you saw Chasing Amy? I'm like, I don't know, maybe like eight years ago. And the first thing that she said was, yeah, I can't watch that one, but I can watch all the other ones. And, you know, we had a discussion about how it's just tough to sit through uh, Alyssa, or Gwen, as I referred to her as earlier <laughs> from Mallrats, uh, her just shouting this entire movie and it's just there's so many off-putting things that i just i can't get into it sorry kevin <laughs> <laughs> for those of you that are listening live we're wrapping up chasing amy and we're getting ready to head into our fourth and final film of the evening which is dogma if you're listening to us on the archive session on youtube make sure you click the next link move on to dogma and let's get rolling and keep on going baby the next film we'll be talking about is Dogma, which is a 1999 American comedy film written and directed by, mm, I'm going to say Kevin Smith, uh, who also stars in the film alongside a huge ensemble cast that included Batfleck, Matt Damon, Linda Florentio, Tino, Florentino, God, I am terrible with names, Alan Rickman, Salma Hayek, Chris Rock, Jason Lee, George Carlin, Janine Garofalo, Alanis Morissette, and of course Jason Mewes. Uh, Brian O'Halloran and Jeff Anderson, the stars of Smith's previous Clerks films, have cameo roles, as do Smith regulars Scott Mosier, Dwight Elward, Walt Flanagan, and Brian Johnson. So in the fourth film set in the View Askew universe, it's a, a hypothetical scenario film revolving around the Catholic Church and the Catholic belief, which caused organized protest and much controversy in many countries delaying the release of the film and leading to at least two death threats against Smith himself. The film follows two fallen angels, Loki and Bartleby, who, through an alleged loophole in Catholic dogma, find a way to get back into heaven after being cast out by God. However, as existence is founded to the principle that God is infallible, their success would prove God wrong and thus undo all creation. The last scion and two prophets are sent by the voice of God to stop them. Aside from some scenes filmed in New Jersey, most of this film was uh, filmed in Pittsburgh. Eddie, we'll start with you. What are your initial thoughts on Dogma? Uh, this is a movie that I I try to watch. Uh, around the same time I discovered Mallrats, I try to watch uh, Dogma. And I'd watch it for five minutes and I'd stop, and I'd watch it for another five minutes and I'd stop. I'd go back to it the next day, watch it for a half hour, and I'd stop. It's just really stupid. 
It's just, it does not do it for me. It's a silly slapstick. Uh, it's about as serious as, as American Pie. American Pie is even better. And uh, I, I, the one thing I don't like about Kevin Smith, and this goes for all his movies, is the constant Catholic thing hanging around. There's always that. And Dogma is just this constant blah, blah, blah with the Bible and stuff. Uh, nothing against it, I guess. Sort of. You know. Uh, but I, uh, it just—it's it, nauseating. I don't, I don't, I don't dig it. Tony, what's your initial thoughts on the movie Dogma? Dogma and Chasing Amy are the two Kevin Smith movies I don't own. But now that I've rewatched Dogma two days ago, I actually really like it a lot more than I did in the past, and I'm gonna end up picking it up. I have a newfound appreciation for this movie, um, and I'm gonna sound like a total hypocrite here because uh, of my big diatribe the last time around of saying that Chasing Amy was not enough of a Kevin Smith movie and not the same as Clerks and Mallrats and Clerks 2 and whatever. Dogma is um, the most mainstream out of all of these movies and I think that it pulls it off really well. Um, if you took Dogma out of the Viewers universe I would still, now that I, I've changed my mind about it I would still just legitimately like this movie um there's downfalls to it of course um the shit monster is one <laughs> but uh <laughs> it's this is a type of movie where um if i were in the mood to just i don't want to say download and officially put myself out there but yeah sure torrent uh the fuck out of a movie instead of seeing it in the theaters or something like that if i would have done that and watched this movie i would have been pleasantly surprised and um I definitely have a newfound respect for the movie. To give you some facts about Dogma, the movie itself, of course, it was directed and written by Kevin Smith with music by Howard Shore and cinematography by Robert E. Yellman. Uh, it was produced by Scott Mosier, edited by both Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier, and, of course, distributed by Lionsgate Films, and the production company was View Askew Productions. Solo this time. Uh, the release date was November 12, 1999, and the runtime was 128 minutes. It worked off a budget of about $10 million, and the box office saw it bringing in about $30 million. So one of the big things in this movie, obviously, is the Catholicism and all the references and characters and basically the battle with uh, good and evil when it comes to the Bible and such. When it comes to the overall idea and theme of the movie, we, we guys kind of touch base in, it in your opening uh, opinions of the movie. We'll start with you, Tony. Do you feel that Kevin Smith approached this in kind of a respectful manner, if he could have, if there's any way <laughs> to do that uh, when it comes to dogma? One word. Platypus. <laughs> He, um, there's no way to get around, um, the issue that some people are going to be upset about this movie. Uh, you can make the simplest, most minuscule religious joke, and if somebody is a militant religious person, they're going to get offended. You can make something that's not even a religious joke, and somebody could get offended, because it could just be like, well, my belief structure says something else, and I'm horribly offended that you said something like that and now I'm up in a tizzy for the rest of my fucking life or something, I don't know. But Smith is a comedian. I mean, he makes funny movies and no subject is 
completely shielded from being made fun of in my mind. You shouldn't make fun of some things, and obviously you shouldn't make fun of certain things in certain environments. You know, you, you can't walk into a cancer ward and start cracking jokes about cancer. But yeah, am I going to laugh at like an AIDS joke every once in a while? Sure, I fucking love that joke. Uh, everyone has AIDS in Team America. And am I going to laugh at the stupid things that happen between straight people and homosexuals and chasing Amy. Yeah, I'll laugh at that because that happens in real life. Or am I going to laugh that Randall is a, a stupid idiot and he does dumbass things like uh, orders porn in front of a little kid? Sure, yeah, it's a funny idea. So, I mean, you take on religion in this and they've got some funny ideas in that, so... You're going to piss somebody off no matter what, but there's no way around it. So he did the best job that he possibly could have done by doing that little platypus thing at the beginning of it and just being like, look, don't fucking take this so seriously, goddammit. Can you stop giving me death threats? And can you just sort of laugh at the idea that, like, you know, there's the 13th Apostle Rufus and he's eating an Egg McMuffin and shit like <laughs> Eddie, what were your thoughts on the overall theme of religion in the movie and how Kevin Smith approached it? Um, yeah, I, dis- I strongly dislike the constant uh, Catholic thing that's going on. Uh, not because I don't like Catholicism in particular. Um, I just, I don't know, sometimes I think Kevin Smith, on the contrary, he's too light with it. I think he's uh, he doesn't really make fun of it at all. Uh, he's just putting uh, hypothetical characters and that, well, look, sure, Loki and Barney, whatever his name is. Barnaby, Beasable, what's his name? Ben Affleck. And, Bartleby. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beasable. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Barney, that would have been good, Barney, huh? The dinosaur. Uh, anyhow, uh, I, I don't I don't see the big deal. I think he approached it fine. I think he did a good job and it it, it is what it is and I, have, I see no reason whatsoever to feel sensitive about anything that's portrayed. As always, when we talk about movies here on the Four Real Movie Club, we talk about the casting. Uh, this one is a huge ensemble compared to the last three we talked about with having Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Linda Fiorentio, God, I can't say it, as the three main characters, and then having a supporting cast of Chris Rock, Salma Hayek, Alan Rickman, Jason Lee, Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes, and of course, uh, the pompous public-seeking cardinal, George Carlin. Um, what were your thoughts on casting, Tony? We'll start with you. Everybody is great in this movie from start to finish, except for one person, Linda Fiorentino. She could be replaced Agreed. by anybody, and nobody would be able to tell the difference. And actually... Um, I've been listening to the commentary, I haven't finished it yet, of Dogma, and Kevin Smith points out that she was apparently a huge pain in the ass when they were working on this movie. She refused to talk to Kevin Smith for portions of it, and in retrospect, he was just like, you know what, Janine Garofalo was awesome, and I would have much rather given her the part, and I think she would have done better in the part, too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, this is, I'm kind of burning a bridge here, but there's got to be a reason why Fiorentino did not become a bigger star because she had a couple of opportunities where she could have ended up breaking out a little bit. Dogma could have been a breakout role for her. Um, She was in Men in Black. That could have been something that boosted her career. Yet, 
Does anybody know her aim? No. Uh, she fell nope. off the face of the earth in like 2000, 2002. Right, but then you look at the rest of the cast. Matt Damon, huge star. Ben Affleck, huge star. Alan Rickman, huge star. Chris Rock, naturally. Salma Hayek, of course. Even fucking, uh, like, Jason Lee had a better career going after this movie. Like, everybody got these bumps up except for Fiorentino. And if you could replace anybody in this movie, um, she would be the only one that you could replace and nobody would give a shit. Everybody else, great. Eddie, what were your thoughts on the cast? Uh, it's not a movie where I'm particularly worried or gave much thought as to who was great or not. It's just, it's a silly movie from beginning to end. So, I mean, movies like that uh, either have great, fantastic performances or everything is just kind of, yay, funny. It's all about the joke. So, I don't know. Uh, everybody's Everybody does their job, you know, solid. Alan Rickman, he brings a very stern, uh, serious... Uh, so I, I think he, I think he was my favorite actor in the movie. He he brought a really good uh, order to the chaos, if I may say so. Uh, in in the world where everybody's kind of silly, like Rufus, you know, James Allen Bob, and even even Loki and uh, Brutus, whatever. Uh, Bar- Barnaby, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, even they were kind of silly with the whole like, ah, oh, we we shall smite them because they sinned and they cheated and ah, oh, let it go, man. Who cares? We gotta get there. We gotta get to Jersey. <laughs> Everything was silly, but I think Alan Rickman was definitely uh, he, he's the only thing that held it together. And I think it would have fallen apart if they got someone to pull off a, a, a silly um, performance. Um, when it comes to this movie. A, it's been thrown around by fans, mainly, of a potential sequel. So I'm going to read you guys a quote that uh, was issued by Kevin Smith in late November 2005 uh, that was asked on his viewaskew.com message boards, and this was his response to the possible Dogma sequel. Uh, Kevin Smith says, and I quote, So weird you should ask this, because ever since 9-11, I've been thinking about a sequel of sorts. I mean, the worst terrorist attack on American soil was religiously bent. In the wake of a set, a set attack, the leader of the free world outed himself as pretty damn Christian. In the last election, rather than a quagmire war abroad, the big issue was whether or not gay marriage was moral. Back when I made Dogma, I always maintained that another movie about religion wouldn't be forthcoming, as Dogma was the product of 28 years of religious and spiritual meditation, and I kind of shot my wad on the subject. Now, I think I might have more to say, and yes, the last scion would be an epicenter of it. And she'd have to be paid, played by Alanis, and we'd need a bigger budget because the entire third act would be an apocalypse. The scary thing is, this the film would have to touch on Islam, and unlike Catholic League, the, when those cats don't like what you do, they issue a death warrant on your ass. And now that I have got a family, I'm not as free to stir the shit pot as I was when I was single back when I made Dogma. I mean, now I've got to think about more than my own safety and well-being. But regardless, yeah, a dogma follow-up has been swimming around in my head for some time now. The question I ask to you guys, and we'll start with you, Tony, a dogma sequel. Yay, nay, what would be the problem? What would be the benefits? Tony? Sequels are tough, and if you don't pull off like a Terminator 2 or Godfather 2 or Empire or Dark Knight or something like that, it almost always is a disappointment. And 
Um, so far, he's only made one sequel, and Clerks 2 is good, but not as good as Clerks 1. Um, I like that Clerks 2 is out there. I really, really want to see Clerks 3. So I would give him the benefit of the doubt that he could pull off a Dogma 2, and I would love to see that, and I'd be there opening night. But I don't know if it needs to be done. So if it doesn't happen, well, that's okay. It's not going to be like um, it's something that bothers me and uh, something that I'm, I'm craving for. But if it does happen, cool. I'll support him 100%. Uh, Eddie, what are your thoughts on a potential Dogma 2? Um, eventually, I'd watch it. That's it. I have, oh. no, <laughs> I have no hope. I have no hope for it being good or anything. Um, I don't. I, I don't know. Sequels randomly work really well. Some, sometimes they don't. More often than not, they don't. Especially if it's a third part. Uh, otherwise, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Um, when it comes to this film, we do talk usually about a little bit about the score and the music. For Dogma, and we'll start with you, Eddie, on this one, how do you feel about the score, soundtrack, all that music tied up into this movie? I mean, uh, the score was, I don't know, it's something you would, you would expect out of a Hollywood production. Um, you know, it's got its dramatic uh, rising, it's got its uh, uh, triumphant end, it's got its mellow moments and as far as the soundtrack when it comes to songs playing in the background I'll be honest I didn't notice anything at all and I think it's the movie where uh, Kevin Smith really I think he really didn't want to focus too much on the soundtrack there's nothing of note you know there's nowhere near as fantastic as Clerks uh, Mallrats and Chasing Amy Tony what are your thoughts on the score and soundtrack you know, I didn't really pay too much attention to that either, now that you brought that up. Um, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's just, it all meshed well in the background, and that's why I didn't pay attention. Uh, is it Howard Shore does the score, I think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Howard Shore's good. I mean, his best work is The Lord of the Rings, and I'm not the biggest, biggest fan of Lord of the Rings, but um, yeah, he knows what he's doing. He's got a, a great uh, film history behind him, and... The score at least works in the movie. I don't remember being off-put by anything like that. The soundtrack and the the songs that were added in there sporadically that are normal mainstream songs and stuff, I can't even remember any of them. So either they were good enough that they didn't make that much of an impact or they weren't good enough to make much of an impact. I don't really know. Hmm. Okay, and... As always, we're we're, uh, wrapping up here on Dogma and the Four Real Movie Club. So I'm going to go to you, Tony, first. What are the high points, low points, and what would you rate this on a 1 to 10? Low points, if it's not Fiorentino herself, it's got to be the shit demon. That's just, um, (laughs) it it tones itself down so much, and it's just, I don't, you know, I like a good dick or fart joke or something, but sometimes it's too easy, and... That just came off too easy. It's got to be a shit demon that they fight. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, there's two things that I would probably point out as highlights. Um, one of them is a pretty obvious one. It's Serendipity's scene that everybody's going to love. And I'll spoiler uh, for those who are listening to this on the iTunes or Stitcher version or whatever. Um, clearly, that is going to be the thumbnail on the YouTube version. <laughs> uh, but... On a more serious note, 
probably my high point is when Bartleby turns and Loki has that discussion. You know, you sound like Lucifer, man. And um, that idea that Ben Affleck's character does the total opposite while Matt Damon's character does the total opposite. And the difference between Damon being this murdering psychopath at the beginning of the movie and then at the end he's this drunken dude who's just kind of like, oh, the muse, man, are those tits real? Like, <laughs> that's fucking... I, I love that about that. Um, but that scene uh, is a really good scene for the two of them to just go all out. And oddly enough, this is a weird thing to, be, to take away from this movie, but re-watching this makes me more excited for Batfleck. <laughs> I have no idea why, but there's something about the Bartleby character, maybe that scene alone, I don't know, that's making me think that Affleck's, he's got it down. So, um, one to ten, uh, I'm going to actually, I you if you would have asked me last week even, I probably would have given it a five, and now... I'm going to give it like a, a seven and a half. Very nice. Uh, Eddie, what's your high point, low point, and what would you rate Dogma on a one to ten? Uh, uh, man, you know, this, this isn't really the kind of movie that I think merits a particular low point, high point focus. Um, yeah, I did not like Linda Fiorentino. And, yeah, maybe she fucks. I'm going to get that part. I don't know. Uh <laughs> Uh, as far as a high point, I don't know, the Buddy Christ thing kind of took off a nine gag, so I like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's part of a, it's a cult thing now, the Buddy Christ thing. Um, I don't know, I'll give, some, I'll, I'll give it a, I'll, I'll give it a, I'll give it a four. I, I just don't, I don't see any, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, if you had a, James Hunt and Bob are not really great characters when they're portrayed in the slapsticky, goofy world. So, um, yeah, shit demon and all that. No, I'll give it. A, I'll give it a. I'll give it a four. Awesome. Uh, when it comes to the films of Kevin Smith, we have run down four of his top popular films. So hopefully, one day down the line, we'll be doing a Kevin Smith part two to talk about four of his other greatest films. Uh, but that wraps it up here for us here on the Four Real Movie Club. So, as usual, on all our podcasts here across Mega Powers Radio, we're going to go around the panel and see what everybody's up to. We'll start with you, Mr. Eddie. Oh, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm going to go to bed soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so basically, um, I'm putting some finishing touches on some uh, soundtrack stuff I'm working on uh, for Fanboys Anonymous. I'm still writing a novel. Yeah, big surprise. Um... There's, no, there's something really, really important I was going to say. Like, my life depended on it or something. But I, I can't think of it. But pretty much that's it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mr. Mango, what do you got going on? All right, wrestling fans out there, go to smartoutmoment.com, and you can find podcasts and everything through that channel. Um, I won't give you all the links because that'll take forever. And... Uh, Obviously, pay attention to everything that's coming your way from fanboysanonymous.com. One thing to mention, we're on the final little bit of time here, but pretty soon we're going to be ending our contest that we're doing on Fanboys right now, where you can win two Voltron t-shirts. Um, this might be a regular thing with us, doing different giveaways and different prize contest sort of thingies. So really pay attention to those. You can... Um, 
you can win different stuff. It's not just always Voltron. Uh, we actually have a couple things in the pipeline that we're working on now. So follow the YouTube account that you are either listening to this on or you can go over to. It's youtube.com slash fanboysanonymous. You can follow the Facebook and Twitter accounts and the Tumblr and the Instagram and so on and so forth. Uh, everything else um, my way. The only other thing that I can really mention is... Stay tuned for the All Talk show, and you'll get more information for that later on. Sweet. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, at The Man. Check out everything that's going on at fanboysanonymous.com, including a new segment that will be going for this fall season called Must See TV Fall 2014, where I run down some of the best shows that are becoming this fall. Uh, check out Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, The Man Show. Huge things coming Many guests in the future. This week's a regular show because I'll be in Montreal and the French people hate me. Uh, check out oldtimewrestling.net where you can see wrestling. Yes, yeah, so September 27th at 7 p.m. I will be going for the Tag Team Championships with my little buddy, Dre the Dragon Drummond. Uh, it is our second shot at him. And Mean Streak, your asses are going down. Uh, also, check out next month, the Four Real Movie Club will be doing Halloween films both Halloween 1 and 2 from the 70s and 80s, and Halloween 1 and 2 that was made by Rob Zombie. So, on behalf of myself, Mr. Tony Mango, Mr. Eddie Secura. Recycle. Recycle. Yeah, you know, for the environment. Yes. (laughs) And everybody else on Mega Powers Radio and Fanboys Anonymous, we thank you for listening to us talk about Kevin Smith here on the 4 Real Movie Club. All you guys, keep on watching films. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. I'm too old for this. Good day, sir! You stay classy, San Diego. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I'm finished. That'll help you. That'll go. Hasta la vista, baby. Hey, everybody! We're all gonna get late! <laughs> You're still here? It's over. Go home.